Hi, this is Paisley, and it is Friday, September 7th, 2018. And I just wanted to add this little intro to the podcast episode since a lot has happened since I recorded it. I, As you'll hear, I recorded it back in July, and since then I had a load of tech problems in every area of my life, actually. A camera, phone, laptop, you name it. And unfortunately, one of the affected devices was my laptop. It wouldn't even turn on at all. It was something with the power cord and the pins and the, the way it all attached. But Lenovo took about a month to get the part in, and in the meantime, I couldn't access my half-edited episode that I was trying to get out to you guys, and there was just a lot more downtime than I was hoping for. I really wanted to get out a few more episodes this summer, but hopefully we'll get back in the swing of things. I do have a two-week trip coming up in early October, so I'll, I'll do my best to get an episode or two out uh, between now and then. But I just wanted to let you guys know what's going on. If you follow my social media, you probably heard me mention it. But if you're just listening to the podcast, this is news to you. And that is why there was such a long hiatus. I also wanted to mention that uh, during the, the downtime, we gained a new patron. Our new patron is Aaron Perez. And I just wanted to say a big thank you because that was a really nice surprise to see in my inbox when all the tech problems were happening. So thank you very much for supporting the podcast, and we'll get right to the episode. Hi everyone and welcome to Team West Covina, a crazy ex-girlfriend podcast. I'm your host Paisley and today is Saturday, July 21st, 2018. This is episode 7 of the podcast and I just wanted to thank you guys for your patience. Sometimes it takes me a little bit longer to get these episodes out than some podcasts. I do tend to do a lot of research for them and I'm doing all the pieces myself so that can kind of delay things. I'll usually watch the episode several times, take a lot of notes, and then let it percolate for a few days because sometimes ideas start to gel and I'll make associations or connections that I hadn't before. Then I'll do the recording, which is also a little bit new for me. I'm more of a writer than a speaker, so this is my first foray into this type of creativity. And the editing definitely takes the longest. That is definitely the most challenging and time-consuming and then I'll do social media and promotions for it. And so it, it's, a, it's a long process, but I do enjoy it. And I'm glad you guys are still listening, even though it takes me a little longer to get episodes out. I do plan to continue to have them, hopefully at least every month. So Today we're discussing the episode Josh and I Are Good People, which is season one, episode five. It aired on November 9th, 2015. It was written by Michael Hitchcock and directed by Alex Hardcastle. The IMBD synopsis says, After Rebecca and Greg's disastrous date, Greg accuses her of being a terrible person in front of Josh. Rebecca takes drastic measures to prove she's a good person, which includes helping Daryl with his messy divorce. As always, there's a spoiler warning. I may be discussing any episodes in the series that have aired so far. We start out with Rebecca's attitude towards the homeless. She says to Joyce in the park, I only have 20s, I got them from working. She could have just been indifferent to the homeless, but for some reason she's actively snarky and sarcastic. 
I'm not sure if this is just because her mom has instilled the career-driven success in her or what, but it definitely seemed a little uncalled for, you know, to have that much derision. When she goes into Cup of Boba, we see that it's outside, not on a set, and Home Basis filmed at the actual Big League Dreams in this one too, so they were definitely on location. Rebecca says that Josh was the only one who went into the camp chapel when they were 16. Religion was pretty prominent in his life through his family even then. She says, I believe in God too. What are the odds? Except we know from the pilot that she doesn't. She had said, God, I don't pray to you because I believe in science. So she basically just lied for her and Josh to have more in common. Lying about believing in God of all things. Greg confronts the two of them, and he says to Josh, cuddling up over Boba when you know your girlfriend would not be cool with that. Also, it's only shortly after Greg's date with Rebecca. It didn't take long for Josh to move in. Part of him may be in denial, even to himself, over what he's doing and why. He's not used to being seen as the bad guy, but he's really not being sensitive to Greg's feelings at all. I mean, Josh and Rebecca are allowed to hang out as friends, but... They are looking at photos of when they were in a relationship at camp, and there's definitely an undertone. But I think Josh is kind of figuring things out, trying to find out where he stands, and it, it's only just beginning to dawn on him that this may be a problem, whereas Rebecca is obviously pretty conscious of it and is just kind of seeing where this goes and how much bonding they can get in. Josh says to Rebecca, no one has ever said anything like that to me in my life. And Rebecca says, yeah, me either. (laughs) Look on her face is so great here. You can tell that she's dealt with this a lot before. She's a flashback to young Rebecca and her mom telling her she's selfish, dramatic, and weird. You drove your father out of this house. So it wasn't merely Rebecca's own idea that she drove her dad away. Her mom planted it or reinforced it, rather than Naomi taking responsibility for her part in the divorce. When 16-year-old Josh calls her dramatic and weird, it's kind of just confirming what her mother said. But let's not ignore Josh's response to this either. He says that no one has ever criticized him like that in his life. Similar to Cheetah, my Josh Chan, Josh has no idea how to deal with people judging him, being angry with him, or not liking him. He kind of goes around with the mentality that everybody adores him normally. So, and he's also not expecting Greg to be that direct, I think. He's probably not going to pick up on subtle social cues if people were ever annoyed with him in the past. But Greg made it very clear, very obvious, and... Josh had to either defend himself or feel ashamed. You know, he had to respond to it. He couldn't just ignore it. Right after contemplating what Greg said, both Rebecca and Josh decide they should probably go. So someone's judgment of them causes them to extricate themselves from the interaction, however temporarily. So in the next scene, Rebecca's in the car with the homeless woman, Joyce, who tells her she has a nice car. Rebecca says it's a 2015 Hyundai Sonata, and then she rattles off all kinds of facts about it. This was their only product placement for the show, and they decided to poke fun at the concept of product placement by being very blunt and explicit in their advertising. Next, we go into the office, and Paula's got a pug picture at her desk. She also has lots of cat pictures. I like to kind of see how they do their workspaces, because they do try to personalize them quite a bit. Paula's got an Eiffel Tower model on her desk. 
she's you know the type that wants the fancy luxurious vacations and things that she hasn't been able to have or experience she's also got lots of pink in her office and a few pictures of couples looking sexy i couldn't quite tell if they were famous actors or what but but definitely romance going on Rebecca brings donuts and lattes into the office and pledges $1,000 to help Karen's sick snake. Karen's delivery is great here. There's something about the way she says it even more than the line. My snake is sick and I just can't focus whenever my snake is sick. (laughs) She's so great. We really miss Karen from the later seasons. Rebecca says to Paula, am I a good person? And Paula says being a good person is overrated. I mean, who cares about that? So this is definitely her slither inside coming through. She really doesn't seem to put that as a priority necessarily because she's thinking strategically. She's trying to do what's best for her. But it's also kind of funny that she said this instead of reassuring Rebecca. She could have just said, oh, honey, you're a great person. But she doesn't. She just says, yeah, it doesn't even matter. Like, that's not a high priority. (laughs) So Paula gets put in charge here when Rebecca and Daryl go off to home base. And Paula revels in this because she's never really gotten to be in charge. She's a paralegal. She's not necessarily going to be the supervisor, even though she's really capable of it. And she wants everybody to get their work done. And nobody's really doing that because Daryl's kind of a chill boss. And this little interaction reminded me a lot of my friend Daisy at her shitty job she was so paula and i could just see her reacting to this scene and identifying with paula so much because this is something she would have loved to do they really put her under stress when she worked for the newspaper and they had her working three jobs other people's jobs they had her do like the whole layout for the paper when she'd never even been trained on it and she was not appreciated by her superiors she had a lot of like infighting with the people that were below her and a lot of passive aggressiveness and her job actually like made her sick she ended up getting Crohn's and colitis and a lot of it was from job stress because she was there like 60 hours a week. It was supposed to be temporary overtime, but it lasted for years. And it just really got to her. And I think it contributed to her illness. And her illness is kind of part of what led to her death because she she was on medication that caused her to have a blood clot. And so basically, none of that would have happened if she hadn't been driven to this because of the stress. So it was a little bit of a digression, but I kind of wanted to bring that up with her and Paula because this kind of stuff builds up. And luckily, Paula has a really cool boss, so she doesn't have to be as stressed out. But I think being able to take charge is a huge thing because work is a big part of what Paula's doing. I mean, other than trying to mother her, you know, screw up kids, a lot of what she focuses on every day and it ends up mattering to her a lot. In the next scene, we see Josh at confession and he's talking about Greg and he said, he said something to me that on one level I didn't think was true, but on another level it is true. So like two things are going on in my brain right now. He's saying this about being attracted to Rebecca, although I thought it might've been about him quote unquote not being a good person too. It kind of works on both levels. So he's in denial about his feelings for Rebecca, or he has been up until this point. And 
part of him's like, oh, yeah, like, that's not a thing. It's not true. It's not a big deal. But at the same time, he's like, wait, yeah, I am really attracted to her. I don't know what I'm going to do about it, but it's there. And with the not being a good person, Josh really sees himself as the leader of his friends. He sees himself as, as likable and approachable. And typically, people get on with him well. He just thinks of himself as a nice guy. But at the same time, he kind of recognizes what Greg is saying. Like, oh yeah, maybe I do have another motive in hanging out with Rebecca. And if that makes me not a good person, I'm not comfortable with that. But this is what I organically want or am trying to figure out. So, I mean, to Josh's credit, he actually goes and talks about it with someone, which not every guy would do. A lot of people tend to keep it inside and just kind of either mull it over on their own or, or just try not to think about it directly. But he gets Father Bra's perspective, which is pretty cool. And Father Bra says, let's take this to a higher court. And then they end up on the basketball court. I thought that was a great transition. Josh tells Father Bra about Rebecca and says, she believes in me in a way that nobody else does. That's a huge thing for him. Josh likes Rebecca in part because of the way she makes him feel about himself, which is probably true in all relationships to some extent, but you do have to question how much of his interest in Rebecca is her and how much is how she makes him feel about his own self and identity and where he's going in life and what he could be. She sees him as an ideal and Josh kind of buys into it. He's like, oh yeah, I want to be who this girl thinks I am, you know? And she tells him, you know, she thinks he can do anything. She's really impressed with his talents. Josh doesn't question his likability so much as his ability to succeed in life or to make something of himself. I mean, part of him is worried that his glory days are over, that he really shined in high school. He was on the dance team and, you know, he's working out and he was probably in sports or something. And he, you know, made a lot of friends, but now it's sort of like, okay, he's not really sure, you know, what to do about the job thing. He's only just now starting to figure that out. And he doesn't really know where his life is going. It seems pretty ordinary in that, oh, he's going to settle down with Valencia and have kids and then what? <laughs> so Rebecca, believing that he could actually do something a little more unique or unexpected, is kind of like a perspective he hasn't even had on himself. He doesn't really believe in himself that much. In the next thing, we see Rebecca talking to Daryl, and Daryl has some interesting fashion sense in that he wears cowboy boots and Western belts, but he also has all this Native American stuff in his office. So I'm not sure if that exactly goes together or if they're a little different from each other, but it's kind of a, a fun little quirk of his. We learn that Rebecca's going to give up on Daryl's case when she finds out that Greg went home from the bar. She's so obsessed with and focused on her own objectives. She doesn't really care to be there if she can't make it look to Greg like she's doing something helpful and good. She just packs it up like the performance is over. When Daryl's talking about his daughter Madison 
and how much he doesn't want to lose her, Rebecca says, maybe it's because my father's an abandoning coward, but I feel like you should dial back the whole daddy-daughter love thing. It sounds a little like Amber Alert. So this is clearly Rebecca projecting, especially after what we learn in second season about Bex and Silas. She's probably a bit jealous of how much Daryl loves his daughter and is fighting for custody. We know there's some kind of Freudian thing going on in Rebecca's head that she's dealing with. You know, we don't know exactly to what degree, but when we see Rebecca and her father practice the dance that they were supposed to do at the wedding the dance instructor thinks they're a couple and there's this like really awkward moment where Rebecca's kind of focused on a little too much and she also kind of brings this up when she's singing the song maybe she's not such a heinous bitch after all about her mom and that it was her first failed romance and that this approval from her parents has somehow gotten mixed up into her relationships. And so I definitely think that Rebecca is reading into that and seeing that in in Daryl's conversation because she's sensitive to it in her own life and she probably feels a little embarrassed about whatever she's dealing with in that category. And she's probably a bit jealous of how much Daryl loves his daughter and is fighting for custody because Silas was so the complete opposite. Silas didn't even want her to visit for the weekend. And the idea of her dad fighting for custody so that he could be with her every day is just so foreign to Rebecca. She sees that other dads are actually doing that and it it makes her feel really bad because for such a long time she wanted her dad to love her enthusiastically and other girls are receiving that love that she's not and it just makes her feel doubly rejected and Daryl's song actually moves Rebecca to this natural inspiration to help him and that's like the first time that she's actually connecting with what's going on in his life and how much Madison and Daryl could benefit from her help and how even though she can't necessarily change what happened in her own childhood, she could help this other family to make sure that 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 kind of damage doesn't occur in Madison's life. Then we're back to the office, and Paula is storming over to Tim and going, you are not Don Draper! It's such a great line. Tim's got like alcohol all over his desk and he's got suspenders on throughout the episode. And the first time we see him, he's got playing cards suspenders on, which is kind of funny because we know now that they have those work poker games. And Tim ends up telling Paula his backstory with Daryl. He says, I came out to LA for a convention. I met Daryl at a strip club. We had a night we swore we would never speak of again. I gave him some fake documents and he never noticed. So this was probably right after Daryl got divorced. I don't think Daryl would like normally go to a strip club per se, but he's probably like feeling blue and doesn't know what to do. And, you know, might've been drinking a little and he and Tim probably had like some kind of an emotional night because you imagine Tim and his wife are not always doing the best either. So Daryl and Tim might have had like some sort of like drunken bonding night. And Tim says, I've been with the firm ever since watching my long O's and pretending not to like hockey, which is a great line. I think I missed that on the first watch because you're so focused on what else is going on. But there's a lot of interesting backstory here. 
and the night we swore we would never speak of again. I feel like there's got to be gay fanfic written somewhere about Daryl and Tim now. You can find everything on the internet. So we actually learned from Madison that Stacy goes to a motel with her boss. So I was wondering, how does Madison know that her mom was with her boss? She found it out on the iPad, but I don't think it gives that much information about where Stacy's boss is. We do learn that Stacy was sleeping with him for the whole five years that she worked at that place. So Daryl is basically finding out that she was cheating the whole time in the middle of the custody process. So this is a huge blow to him. He's already like worried he's going to lose his daughter. And then he finds out that not only are they getting divorced, but this was kind of a sham. And he says at some point that he thinks his whole life is a lie and it feels like it was time wasted, you know, as far as the relationship goes. And in response to this, when Daryl confronts her about cheating, Stacy says it's because Daryl talks about his feelings all the time and cries at cat food commercials. She's citing feminine-associated things. And first of all, I mean, obviously this doesn't give her license to cheat on him. But it's interesting that that's what she provides as her reasons because I think Daryl's already kind of sensitive about that, that he knows he's not like a lot of guys and he doesn't fit that macho stereotype. And so to hear that those are some of the reasons she left him has got to be pretty devastating at the same time, there is the whole idea of you can't help who you're attracted to. And there are people who are sometimes tend to go for like more beta partners. Some go for more alpha partners. Some might go for people in the middle. You know, you might prefer alpha or beta differently, depending on if you're dating a different gender. It's terrible the way it comes out with Stacy because she's just rude about it and mean about it. But there is, unfortunately, something to be said for that. That is like a natural thing that happens. So I have a friend who tends to go for beta guys. She's straight and uh, beta guys are typically her type. So she might fall for people who are a little more sensitive or a little more go with the flow. They might be artsy. I mean, alpha or beta, you can be artsy on either side, but they're are comfortable expressing their feelings or they're just shy and their feelings don't come out very easily and they are comfortable with her taking the take charge role she's naturally more of a tomboy and she's pretty opinionated she's had some anger issues in the past she has some interest in maybe a little bit more um, of traditionally masculine interests and hobbies and stuff like that so she can kind of relate to guys on that level and for whatever reason that that balance of roles seems to work for her it might not be the same for for everybody but in in her case that's what she tends to to like and go for so it's not like it's impossible for women to go for beta guys but some people are really not attracted to that and it's not exactly something they can help but it is definitely something to be tactful about. And Stacy is acting like it's a criticism of Daryl when it's really just a personal preference of hers. She is acting like it's something he's done wrong or something that's his fault. And that's just, it's just so uncalled for in the moments. That's not a defense of anything. Um, it 
certainly doesn't give her the right to cheat on him or lie to him. But I think Daryl probably takes that into consideration when he's later exploring his sexuality and figuring out where he's going to go from here. We learn that Madison has a YouTube channel called Snaily Sitters Club. And it's always kind of funny to me to think of like young girls having YouTube channels. I mean, of course it happens now, but it's still odd to think of them like putting themselves out to the public and you know maybe leaving a lot of embarrassing things behind them in real life. I can't imagine if like all the little things I, I did creatively at nine or ten were on the web for everyone to see but she's pretty independent and she's handling things and she's doing pretty well with her snails all considering rebecca gets temporary custody for madison and she strides into home base feeling pretty good about herself and this is when the fantasy number i'm a good person comes on I think it must have been a lot of fun to film. She dunks the $300 mic, steps on the table, throws food, wipes her hand on the server's shirt, doesn't save someone who's choking. I like how the dancers in the back start like half-heartedly doing the monkey along with her because she's got a knife and they just want to follow along. What we're watching here is an exaggeration, kind of a, a parody of someone who believes or wants to be a good person but can't pull it off. It's funny because it's over the top and is not necessarily literal. I mean, the thing is, some people might realize what they're doing, but Rebecca's not very self-aware in this moment. And she actually kind of sort of believes that she's a good person now and has proved it. Whereas we recognize that it's more complicated than that. And so we get the joke. And if we were put in a situation like that where we were trying to prove ourselves, we'd probably be a little more aware of it and and able to kind of laugh at the parody. Whereas Rebecca kind of like takes it at face value and is like, okay, Greg, I'm a good person, so everything's okay now. They end up in the back room and Rebecca practically takes her clothes off. It's definitely a lack of impulse control. And that comes up a lot later on in season three when they talk about borderline and some some of the symptoms or things that might happen is a lack of impulse control. It seems like she's doing this to reconcile with him more than because of any attraction towards him. I mean, not that she's not attracted, but she's almost doing it business-like, like, oh, okay, this will fix everything. Here, let me just take my clothes off. It's fine. Um, So Greg is really, really confused. He says, I'm supposed to forget what happened because you took a case and got some guy temporary custody. And all Rebecca hears is the word temporary. She says, temporary, I get it, I get it. And Greg's like, I don't get it. She thinks she can solve it by making it permanent custody. She's constantly looking for a way to solve the issue, even if it doesn't have any relevance back to the original situation. Rebecca seems to want to be able to like do anything that allows her to be proactive and potentially fix things. She seems to like feel okay and be able to like ride that driven purpose high until she can't anymore is as long as she can run around and do something proactive and do something that might potentially make it better she's okay but if she runs out of things to do then she kind of like crashes and feels really horrible 
And I actually do get that part of it because I tend to be proactive too. Like if I can do something that might fix the situation, whatever the case may be, like I I will feel a lot better. But when I get to the point where I'm like, okay, I've done everything I can do. I don't know what to do now. You know, you feel helpless or hopeless because now you just have to sit with it. So I get what she's going through when she's trying to cope, but some of the things she does to try to solve it, it, it's like should be obvious that this is not going to work. Rebecca's also willing to do something illegal and get someone else arrested just to prove a point. She's being a bad person in order to prove she's a good person. It's all about how it appears rather than how it is. And in the next scene, can we just acknowledge that Josh has mannequin fantasies? <laughs> Where did that come from? I, I'd forgotten he said that, but... Um, and he's so just like forthright about it. He's like, well, this happened. And then I thought about that mannequin. He's just like so... Yeah, I know that wasn't great. Sorry, Father Bra. <laughs> and Father Bra says, what matters is what you do, not what you think. Do you guys think this is true? I think on a lot of levels, it works. That is, you can't really help what you think for one thing. Whatever you think, it just pops into your head. And if you are conscious enough to not act on it, if it's something that's not great, you know, that helps you function in society. And, you know, you you can't really totally be held responsible for what you think in, in a lot of cases, but it really depends on the situation. And... There are situations in relationships where, you know, the say like a guy is attracted to a girl, really likes a girl, and even though he only hangs out with her as a friend and doesn't do anything else, he's still like getting something out of that interaction. So if he has a girlfriend, like you can see why she would be uncomfortable with what he thinks, even if he doesn't act on it, because every time he hangs out with that girl, it's going to give him some sort of like ego boost or some sort of thrill and that in turn is going to affect his relationship with his girlfriend so i mean sometimes what you think does matter and just simply not taking action on it isn't enough i mean maybe maybe he can't hang out with her or you know maybe he has to resolve his feelings or maybe they should hang out in a group or you know there's a lot of ways to to solve that issue but it is something that actually would affect his relationship even if he doesn't act on it. So I'm not sure if it's quite as simple as what Father Bra is saying, but I think in a lot of cases that's probably true. Next we see Rebecca at Stacy's house, ready to plant some money in her bag. And Stacy catches her and says, Do you have any idea how hard it is to know your child prefers her father? You can see in this moment that Rebecca has let her own family drama influence her in how she's handling the situation. On the surface, it's all about her being a good person. But with Stacy's question, we can see that Rebecca vilified Stacy, kind of making her out to be the Naomi figure in all of this. She was projecting her feelings towards her own mother and father onto the situation. The idea of her dad getting permanent custody of her would have like thrilled Rebecca to pieces. And she often sees her mom as the one who yelled at her, judged her, criticized her, kind of like made her feel badly about herself. Rebecca says she has low self-esteem, lack of a maternal affection, and a predisposition for anxiety and depression. Rebecca says, because of my lack of any parental validation, I always seek outside validation in others. 
So she comes to this realization, and, and Greg in this case is more of a parental figure in comparison to Rebecca and Josh, who in many ways are like children, as we've explored in, in other podcast episodes. I mean, Greg isn't perfect either. He's got his own issues, but he, he has a, a type of maturity and he's pretty astute in his observations. And, and that's something that Rebecca and Josh don't always have. So he is someone that Rebecca could kind of look up to a little bit and think, well, if Greg doesn't think this is cool, maybe I should second guess it or rethink it. Madison calls Rebecca the crazy lady. And Rebecca says, crazy is a pejorative term. It's an overgeneralization of a number of disorders. And I think that's a really important point, especially since season three later deals with mental illness head on. We do throw the word crazy around like a lot. I remember being in high school and at the time people were still saying that's so gay or to mean that's so lame or bad or or whatever the case may be. And it was a lot more common to hear at that time. And this is kind of the same thing, but like more pervasive because we do use the word crazy anecdotally in layman's terms or, oh, she's so crazy or oh, this is such a crazy situation. And crazy originally, like, you know, it had that connotation with, like, mental illness and mental institutions and, you know, wrapping up all mental illness in that crazy label. And, you know, there's so many different kinds of mental illness and they're all different and they're normally affecting a subset of your life and it's not completely, totally who you are. It's it's just a part of, of who you are and it's something that you're dealing with. It's not your whole identity. So I've actually become like more conscious of how I use the word crazy and I try not to use it to describe someone because generally that's not totally accurate. Back at the office, we've got another scene with Tim and we see his suspenders are alcohol glasses this time. And Mrs. Hernandez in this scene seems like a very different character here. She doesn't speak in the early days kind of reminds me of Norma in Orange is the New Black a lot, actually, in in season one. But Paula communicates with her, and she approves of Paula's decision to let Tim stay on at the office rather than send him back to Canada, whereas the Mrs. Hernandez of season three would have sent him packing. (laughs) So I think Mrs. Hernandez has definitely evolved as a character. They are kind of using her as they see fit, and have kind of shaped and developed her and gone in a different direction. Mrs. Hernandez is actually like a little bit like sweet in season one, but tough. And because we're seeing her through Rebecca's lens, it's a little hard to say how accurate that is. I mean, when she actually is heard by Rebecca, Rebecca says, oh, she's mean. And it's like she wasn't even paying attention to that before. So, but Rebecca actually isn't in this scene. So it it does kind of bring up the question of how to read Mrs. Hernandez and how does she go from being sweet to a little bit of a bitch. Because Mrs. Hernandez is like very supportive of Paula always, but you'd think she wouldn't care about Tim. Yet in this case, she's supportive of Paula's decision and thinks that it was the right thing to do. Paula says, don't tell anyone or it's not really a good deed. She doesn't want to be doing it to boost her own reputation. Nor does she care as much about proving to others that she's a good person. Later, when she tries to pull back from problematic spying or obsessive behaviors, it's for herself. It's because they're not good for Paula. It's not about being a good person so much in Paula's case. 
And it's also about like not getting into legal trouble when she's studying to become a lawyer. So I think Paula still very much has a Slytherin way of looking at things in terms of being practical, strategic, and valuing self-preservation. She's not out to prove that she's a good person in the same way that Rebecca is. I also want to note some of the clothing and accessories we see in the scene. We've got Paula's pea necklace and her turtle necklace, which have become pretty iconic. We recognize those as very Paula items. Then we hear Settle For Me music playing as Greg comes to sit down by Rebecca on the baseball field. Rebecca spends the whole episode trying to be a good person. And as soon as Josh texts her at the end, she's back to Cup of Boba. Back where she started again, doing something that Greg had criticized Josh for doing because he had a girlfriend. And Josh tells Rebecca, I am attracted to you. Very, very attracted to you. But the thing is, I love Valencia. I plan on staying committed to her. Again, like with Greg and the word temporary, Rebecca only hears what she wants to hear. In fact, those sentences that Josh said, they're portrayed as an echo in her head as she replays them over and over, possibly literally not hearing the rest of what Josh conveys here. So in some ways we come full circle and, and don't really solve this, this issue, but at the same time when, when Rebecca apologizes to Greg, she is truly sorry. She does feel really badly about it, and Greg can tell, and, and that makes a difference. So let's move on to some segments of the podcast. The whodunit segment, which is how many times Rebecca initiates plans to get together with Josh and how many times does Paula instigate them. There really isn't anything to count in this episode because we don't know who initiated Boba the first time, whether it was Josh or Rebecca, so that's a draw. And the rest of the time is spent on other pursuits in this episode. They're both kind of going different directions. The Ring of Fire segment, finding the fire reference in every episode. It took me a second watch to find this one, but Daryl says about Madison, she's my candle in the window guiding me home. So, candles, fire. And we don't have anything for the Suicide Watch segment or the Booze Clues, didn't see anything mentioned having to do with that. But for Nailed It, we see Rebecca wear white nail polish the whole episode at Cup of Boba, at work at home base, at Daryl and Madison's house, at Stacy's house, at home base again. It's all about trying to prove that she's a good person. So that's pretty clear symbolism. Then we move on to music notes, which discuss the song parodies and what they're based on or inspired by. The first song in the episode is I Love My Daughter, but not in a creepy way, which was written by Rachel Bloom, Adam Schlesinger, and Jack Dolgen. Listening to the Spotify commentary, we learn that it started out as a hair metal ballad, some sort of like every rose has its thorns, it's about his daughter going away, but it kind of evolved into uh, a different sort of demo. So then they had Jack work on it for a while, and his demo was apparently really, really funny, but creepy and dark, and it actually did kind of insinuate more going on. And every writer on the staff asked to be sent the original demo because it was apparently that funny. And the drummer could barely record because he kept laughing when he heard the vocal. Aline says, I tortured Jack and made him rewrite this 12 or 15 times because she thought this is definitely not going to fly with the network. We need to kind of revamp this. We don't want people hating the character. And... From IMBD, they talk about the song a little bit and how the original demo was dark and twisted, sung by a character who obviously wanted to have sex with his daughter. And Aline Brosh McKenna was 
kind of taken aback by how deranged it was and eventually as they like rewrote it it helped kind of carve out an identity for daryl imbd says the flustered self-doubt presented in the lyrics became a defining character trait and the final version still caused some concern at the network but mckenna insisted it couldn't be watered down anymore arguing that the only other option was to cut the song altogether so they they hung in there but it sounded like they they worked on this one quite a bit and I think Pete Gardner's delivery really helps with this too. Like it, it makes it funny and not quite as creepy because we, we see that he has good intentions and he, you know, he's being sincere about it, if a little bumbling. And by the end, Rebecca gets it. There's also the butterfly kisses being the inspiration. Um, I took a look at the music video for that and in the original a little girl has bare feet on top of her dad's shoes while dancing which they mimic in crazy ex-girlfriend the the little girl on a swing scene is mimicked they also do that there's a line she'll make a promise and i'll give her away from the original song and crazy ex-girlfriend references this saying one day she'll fall in love and i'll give her away not like i ever had her what a weird thing to say so they they definitely are doing kind of a, a parody to that song which they pulled off really well the next song in the episode is i'm a good person written by rachel bloom and adam schlesinger apparently rachel bloom came out with with the title and adam did the first pass of the song it started out as kind of a punk pop song like avril lavigne and then it kind of became more taylor swift shake it off and the actors who played the girl scout girls in the scene wanted rachel to hold the knife to their throats but she thought that was going too far and would just make viewers hate rebecca too much and then there's also an explicit version of i'm a good person on youtube and with lots more dirty references basically so we've got a lot to draw from from those those were two you know probably tough songs to get passed through the network in the way that they originally wanted to do them So discussing the theme of the episode, this one is actually pretty straightforward and, you know, explicitly spelled out. In trying to be a good person, Rebecca basically becomes a worse person. Just like how in the last episode, in trying to make healthy choices, she ended up making terrible choices. It seems to be what's happening because Rebecca's trying to force something that isn't organically there at that moment. She's also seeking all this outside validation as if it would provide her with inside validation when I don't think it really would. Even if Rebecca convinced the world she was a good person, I don't think it would be enough if she herself was struggling with some of her actions and choices. In this episode, all three main characters, Rebecca, Josh, and Paula, struggle with decisions that involve choosing whether to be a good person or not and what that really means. Some people on the other side of the political spectrum might say Paula's a good person if she reports Tim to the proper authorities and upholds the law. You know, it can be relative depending on your perspective, but in Paula's eyes, she's doing right by Tim's family by letting him keep his job. So let's look at the poll results from, from last podcast episode. One of the polls was Rebecca takes the butter commercial as a sign. Do you follow signs, perhaps more significant ones in your own life? 0% said always. 14% said never. 22% said rarely and 64% said sometimes, so a little over half, sometimes follow signs. And I would probably agree with that as well. The other poll question was, during the Taco Festival episode, on your first watch, who were you hoping Rebecca would get together with? 7% said Josh, and 7% said Man Buns Taco Fest guy. So interestingly enough, an 
as many people wanted Rebecca to get together with the taco guy as they did for her to get together with Josh, even though this was just a kind of a one-off episode, 22% said no one. Even that early on, they, they didn't want her to end up with, with anyone that they were meeting so far. And 64% said Greg, which is, of course, the direction the show was leading us in wanting the viewers to vote for her and Greg because this is the trope of her falling for the nice guy in the end instead of the charming one. But, of course, the show is actually not going to take us down that road either. <laughs> Then we had the podcast questions and any other listener comments about Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. We had a comment from Winnowing Wins on Reddit. They say, I think Rebecca jumped to settle way too fast. I think of settling as staying with someone even after knowing they're not the one. If you haven't even been on the date yet, how do you know? It's interesting how she decides she's destined to be with Josh based on a slight flirtation on the sidewalk 10 years after he dumped her in pretty much the worst way ever. Yet she decides to settle with Greg after a conversation about going to the taco festival. Neither one of these guys is asking her to run away with them and be the love of their lives. Rebecca is the one who projects, who decides it's all or nothing. So that was the comment from Winnowing Wins. And I think that's a great point about Rebecca jumping to conclusions, making it all or nothing, instead of being comfortable with like residing in that in-between place where she's undecided about a particular person. And sometimes, you know, it's necessary to kind of explore and experiment and get to know somebody before totally calling it. And Rebecca's already idealized Josh from when they were teenagers. And so to her, it's like so much more than a flirtation on the sidewalk, but it's it's all really coming from her. You know, I think Winnowing Wins is right that she's just projecting all of that, but she's placing a great deal of importance on it. And... I know like when I did online dating, I would purposely like go on more than one date with each person unless I like absolutely wasn't feeling it. If it was at all ambiguous or I hadn't made up my mind yet, I'd, I'd meet up with the person in a couple different situations to see more sides of them. More often than not, my gut feeling was correct, but I didn't want to rely completely on that because it can be kind of hard to separate intuition from snap judgments. And sometimes it takes a while before feelings of attraction develop. So it's a lot easier to be on board with Rebecca and Greg later in the season when they've gotten to that point and she's actually given it time. I mean, right now, she's not into Greg enough. It still feels like settling, whereas that potentially changes as we get to the end of season one. Although I do think that's a little bit debatable as well. So the new poll question for this podcast episode is favorite supporting character in Josh and I are good people because we do see quite a lot of supporting characters in in this episode. Um, The choices are Tim, Madison, Father Bra, or Mrs. Hernandez. And Twitter only gives me four choices, so unfortunately I I can't put in Joyce or, or any of the other supporting characters like Jim. And the podcast question for this episode is, why do you think Paula both finds Greg sexy, yet simultaneously is very against Rebecca ever dating him? She even gets to the point later in the season where she says she doesn't care who Rebecca dates as long as it's not Greg. We hear one of the first times she mentions that Greg is sexy at the office, she says that to Rebecca. And so I love to hear listeners' thoughts on that. If you guys are able to rate the podcast or review the podcast on any of the apps that you use, that would be a great help. It bumps the podcast up in search results. People will see it closer to the top. 
and it will help us get more listeners. So thank you to anybody who's who's already done that. It really is a huge help. It It's a big part of the way it gets promoted when somebody's just searching for crazy ex-girlfriend stuff. And you can reach out to the podcast or start discussions on Facebook at facebook.com slash Team West Covina, Twitter at Team West Covina, or Instagram under Team West Covina. You can also email me at paisley.podcasts at gmail.com. And if you don't plan to join us for a Copian's Corner, thanks for listening. Okay, so for those of you who are still here, welcome to a Copian's Corner where we discuss our personal connections and associations with the episode and anything that it brought up for us from our own lives. I'd like to start with the I'm a Good Person song. And every time I hear that song, it kind of does make me like laugh in a dark humor sort of way because it is definitely how Catnip saw me after I told her that Cheetah and I had feelings for each other. And more importantly, it's how she tried to portray me to other people. She would start out with, everyone thinks she's such a good person, but (laughs) when she told the original story about what actually happened, nobody stopped being my friend or had an issue with it. So she started telling a different story every time, adding and embellishing. And it started to, it got to the point where it was almost like shockingly comical and I'll, I'll get into that more in later episodes, you know, like the, the revenge-oriented ones are probably good ones to talk about that on. But And the basic idea is that there was a lot of slander, and so it was, it was a pretty rough period, but what she was always trying to convey was something similar to the song, like, oh, yeah, like, she gives off this impression that she's a great person, but she's really not. And, you know, she she definitely came to see me the way the, the song portrayed Rebecca. And so it does make me laugh. Like, it's a good way of laughing about what happens. To kind of give you a little background, the reason I actually sat down and, and told Catnip when I did and and how I did was because she actually ended up in a really similar situation to my role. Cheetah and I'd had feelings for each other when they were in a relationship and he was afraid to tell her and he didn't know what he was going to do. And then he was just afraid of her reaction. And so it was a whole big thing for years. And um, by this point, they were broken up. Uh, Cheetah had broken up with her. It had been a few months. And within a month of them breaking up, Catnip actually ended up talking to another one of our friends who was sort of a peripheral member of our friend group and she started talking to this guy online and they got super close and they became a couple really quickly actually Um, I mean it wasn't a problem I'm not saying that as a criticism but she does tend to like get into relationships really quickly after after a breakup and but in this case, as far as I know, it, it was actually a positive thing for her. This guy was married to another one of our friends. <laughs> I know it sounds like a soap opera. But so this guy and girl were married and had a child, actually a, a young girl. And they had been having problems for years and eventually decided to get divorced. And they had made that decision, but I think they were still living together at the time that he and Catnip got close and eventually decided to start a relationship. And when the girl, our friend, found out, she was like, yeah, you have to move out. And they basically started living in separate places at that point. And eventually 
catnip told me and then some of our other friends and every time she told a person that she and this guy friend were together she was really nervous about friends reactions because everybody knew everybody in the situation and we're all part of the group and i mean she was actually the first person to deal with this because cheetah and i had not gone public with our stuff yet so we were actually watching catnip do it or i was watching catnip do it because she hadn't actually told cheetah that this was happening so like everyone else in our group knew it was happening but she hadn't told cheetah and they were still <laughs> living together because they had to finish out their lease and but i like respected her boundaries i'm like okay you know they're broken up yeah you know cheetah and i are close but this is her thing i'm not gonna tell him if she doesn't want me to tell him you know and so it was really a hard line to walk but and watched catnip and this guy tell all our friends one by one and they became accepted in the group i mean some people had a little bit more of an issue with it than others but it really wasn't bad and everybody kind of got on board with it and brought them in and saw how happy they both were and it was interesting to say the least because i had been dealing with this privately for a long time and I was like, well, gosh, we just watched Catnip do it. Can't we tell her? Because, you know, then the group can accept us too. And, and, and we can all be open about what's really going on. That's what I wanted from the beginning, you know. But I was in the situation where I was watching this all play out. Cheetah was not. He had no idea. And he wasn't coming out with the group right now because he and Catnip were broken up. So he was kind of laying low but i was still catnip's friend and i was still part of the group and and so i was seeing all this happen and i i thought well, gosh you know i mean i really wish this could be us i mean it's working out so well for them this seems like the perfect time to tell her i thought that she would relate to being in my role and that she would em empathize with what i was going through because we both ended up in the same role in in like some sort of extreme irony we, we both found ourselves in this situation at different times and in slightly different ways so that's kind of why i ended up telling her catnip and cheetah had been broken up for several months by this point and it had taken him so long just to break up with her that i was having a lot of trouble believing that he would ever tell her that we had feelings and we were starting you know to be together and and i just had a lot of trouble believing that he would actually do it and I was trying to get, you know, like, like some kind of date out of him, like, okay, when, when are we going to do it? It doesn't have to be right this second, but just let me know when you think the, the time will be right. Or, you know, is it a couple months out? What, what are you thinking? And he, he just couldn't give me like a time or a date or um, any kind of even approximation. And I'd just been dealing with this delaying for so long. I mean, I had actually told him before I knew they were going to break up. I'd actually told him, you know, look, this has gone way too far. If you don't tell her that we have feelings for each other, I'm going to tell her at the beginning of that year. I basically like gave him a deadline and said, you know, this isn't good for anybody. I want you to do it and I want you to do it on your timetable, but it's been years <laughs> and you've made your decision and, and we, have to, we have to get over this hurdle. And as it turns out, they ended up breaking up right around right right before that that deadline hit so 
I kind of, you know, rode that out for a while because they had to deal with the breakup and all kinds of other things. And so I didn't think he had to immediately tell her. But after it had been several months and she had a boyfriend who she thought was fantastic and they were really getting on well and it was a kind of relationship that she had never been able to have with Cheetah. She actually felt, you know, physically and emotionally attracted to this new guy and I'm like, okay, I, I think, you know, I think we, we better tell her, I said, because I'm still put in a position where I'm Katnip's friend. I'm going to hear her talk about the breakup. I'm going to hear her talk about her feelings. And I feel really weird doing that without her having all the information. She's moved on from you. She doesn't want to be with you. But <laughs> I, I still, I don't want to be deceptive. That's not my aim. I'm only holding back because you're not ready, Gina, you know, basically. So it got to the point where I was like, yeah, I don't have a date on this. I don't have any information. I think she's ready. I've kind of prepped her. We've talked around it. Let's just do it and rip the bandaid off. And I think it's going to be okay. And I think she can handle this. And we're really good friends. We've never had a problem. She knows my situation you know, she knows why we would fit together better. And, you know, let's, let's try to move through it. Even though it might be a difficult transition, let's just try to move through it. And I I think we can get through it. Because to me, it, it seemed like it would be so hypocritical to, you know, lash out at me when she herself was in this position and was really, really nervous what, um, her boyfriend's ex-wife would think. And she, she knew what it was like to, worry about other people's reactions but a lot of people are just not very consistent in how they deal with things and so even though it it was a hypocrisy she reacted the way she reacted and it it turned into a a big ordeal that lasted at least a year and and still there's still kind of remnants of that that we have to deal with because we are technically all still part of one group although that has changed to some degree as well so I'm a good person really relates back to a lot of all those intricate dances that we had to do during changing relationships I mean it does it sounds like a sitcom or or something like that and it was all very close to the chest and that we all knew each other you know fairly well but people fall for each other and it's a little unpredictable and getting everybody to handle it properly can be hard because not everybody agrees on the right way to handle it And when Catnip slandered us, Cheetah knew not to believe her because, you know, he's the one that knew what she was really like in the first place. He was the one who knew she could be vengeful. But at the same time, he felt embarrassed and stressed out by all the slander she was publicly dishing out because, like Josh Chan, he'd never had to deal with being bullied or hated before. And he was really ill-equipped to deal with it. it. It was almost too much for him to handle and he started to associate me with the stress even though I wasn't causing it I was just part of the topic and although he forgave me for telling her eventually it it did put a a huge strain on our relationship and led to some other events that I'll be talking about later as we get through the series the other thing this episode brought up for me was the line that Rebecca says to Madison, crazy is a pejorative term, it's an overgeneralization of a number of disorders. And I thought about one of the first times I had to deal with the word crazy and how it was being used. I was probably around 11, 
maybe around fifth grade. It would have had to be at least fifth grade because I was in the new house. And my sister and I were watching Beethoven, the movie with the dog. I don't know why I remember that, but now I associate Beethoven with this. And the phone rang and it was a landline, of course, back in the day. And so I went to answer it. And when I picked up the phone, I realized my mom had gotten there first and had already answered it. And she said like a sentence or something. And I don't even remember what the sentence was, but she, whatever she said, I thought, is she talking about me or who's she talking about? Or wait, what's going on? Whatever it was, it was like something weird. It was not like a normal conversation. And so I stayed listening for a second, which I don't normally do. I'd never really felt moved to do that before. Um, But something made me go, wait, 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 wait. And I eventually discerned that my mom was talking to a psychiatrist and she seemed to be talking about me, although it took a while for me to figure that out because the way she was describing me was like so off the wall and inaccurate and I I felt really caught off guard. She, I feel like the psychiatrist ended up listing off a bunch of terms like, is she aggressive? Is she argumentative? And she kind of listed off a whole bunch of adjectives. And my mom was like, uh, yes, that's her. That's exactly her. And I was like, what? And knowing that she was talking to a psychiatrist about me, I thought like I equated the word psychiatrist with the word crazy. And I thought, oh my gosh, my parents think I'm crazy. (laughs) And when you're 11 and you're a kid and you're a dependent and you don't know very much about this, and I didn't really have like good friends, so I didn't have anyone to talk to about it. So I was just like kind of holding this inside. And and it, it sort of like made me question it too. I was like, well, what other things do I do that might be crazy? You know, because I do this, does that make me crazy? And adults are seen as authorities in your life at that time. And so it it did make me kind of have some self-doubt, like, well, if I'm crazy, would I know I'm crazy? And it, it just seemed so serious and so huge to me at that age. And I definitely remember associating that term with the whole situation and there's a lot of qualifiers with what was going on here too because as an adult or even as a high schooler later on looking back at this um you know i mean i recognize that there are a lot of other factors i had gone through several different kinds of abuse as a child and 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 some of them had stopped by that point but some of the abuse was still going on certain kinds of it i was still dealing with from my father and my mom was unaware in denial about certain kinds of abuse and she was certainly unaware of the extent of it. She would have probably seen him acting that way towards me sometimes, but the full extent of it, she did not seem to be fully aware of. And some of it happened when she wasn't in the room. And so I was kind of holding on to a lot of stuff, but she'd seen enough of my dad's interactions with me to that she should have known something was wrong, but the way she was talking to the psychiatrist, it definitely seemed like it was all on me. Like, oh, yep, she's got a problem. It's all her. And I, it sounded like my parents were doing this together. Even though mom was the only one on the phone, it seemed like her and, and my father were both pursuing this avenue together. And I, a lot of the reason why I 
got in arguments with my dad is because I was kind of holding in all this anger and stress and frustration around the abuse. And so every time I interacted with my dad, I basically, it brought that up for me. And there were other things too, like he had tried to point fingers at me early on and not deal with his own issues by saying that he thought I had a chemical imbalance and that, oh, if we just medicate her, then she'll, you know, do whatever I say and and she'll be more docile and she won't question things. And that just sounded really scary to me at 11 because I didn't really understand how it changed people's brains or what it might do or what it might not do. And I knew that he wanted to do this and I was really against it. And I also didn't think it was necessary, which you know, was later confirmed as I became an adult and kind of went on to look at mental health issues. They're like, yeah, you know, you don't have a chemical imbalance. You don't have anything that's long-term or, or physical like that. Any depression that I went through was was basically, it was based on circumstances and, and, and wasn't as much of a, it wasn't stemming from a chemical process per se. Because some people that deal with it chronically they have it all the time or it's just like a pervading condition that they may have their whole lives or throughout their lives and even when things in their life are objectively good they may still deal with depression and that's not my situation at all for me any sort of depression I'd ever gone through was very much based on what was externally happening in my life so in any case a lot of this was really unfounded and hard for me to make sense of at 11 and I was really nervous about him trying to make me take medication so this actually even extended to taking vitamins he wanted my sister and I to take vitamins every day and I didn't have a problem with taking vitamins I just didn't believe they were necessarily actually vitamins I was afraid like Rebecca, like later on in in season three, when she finds out that her mom is drugging her, I was afraid that my dad was going to drug me. I didn't trust him. And I thought, are these really vitamins? Is this how he's secretly getting the medication in me? I know he wants me to take, you know, this medication for chemical imbalance. And I was really paranoid about it because the trust level was so low. And so I would argue with him about taking vitamins and, and it would become a big fight, but there was like this whole reason why I didn't want to take them that like they weren't aware of and telling my parents wouldn't have done anything because if they were drugging me, they're not going to come clean about it. And it was just something that I never really expressed out loud, but there were good reasons for why I was reacting that way. And the other thing is like we'd, we'd argue about chores because I would question whether he was paying us a fair wage because I could come home from school and say, well, you know, all of my other friends are making about this much or this much. And yes, there are differences, but my wage is nowhere near what my friends make for doing far less. And there's something that's not fair about that and not right. And we would get into those types of arguments and he'd pay us like $2 a week. And if it wasn't perfect, if he found any fault in it, he'd dock our pay to $1 a week. And my friends were getting like $5 a week or $10 a week or for doing far less work. And so I questioned it and I said, you know, if it's not worth the pay, I mean, you end up deciding not to do the work just like you would with any other job. It has to be 
worth it. And he didn't like that I was questioning him. And he's just generally, he's just cheap in general. So he was trying to pay as little as possible. And I just always questioned the decisions that he made and kind of gave rational reasons for why they might not make sense. And my dad just really hated that. And he just didn't want to be questioned. He didn't want to have to explain himself. And it would turn into an argument pretty quickly. I was also like a good kid. I cut straight A's and I did really good in school and I didn't have any behavioral problems. And I was like, you know, polite and on a better track than a lot of the kids. And so it was really frustrating because I tried so hard to be a good kid. It was really frustrating to feel like my parents were betraying me and like going behind my back and consulting a psychiatrist when there were family issues that were the primary cause of this. And so trust really went out the window at that point. Um, I didn't tell a soul about what I'd overheard and what I was dealing with until almost a year later. Oh, and in a couple days after I heard the phone conversation, I know I like noticed some books by my mom's bed about like similar topics and stuff. Like she was like researching it or looking it up. So I, it just really made me break with them. And the funny thing is nothing ever came of it. They never took me to a psychologist they, or a psychiatrist or a- anything like that. They never brought it up. You know, it, it never actually turned into something that we faced directly. But it did have a huge impact on me as a person. And since I didn't really have close friends to tell, it was not until a year later that I ended up telling my friend from my old neighborhood who was a year older than me and asking her, do you think I'm crazy? And she was like, no. And she felt really bad, but she didn't know what to say, obviously. And it was really hard to be vulnerable and put that out there because it felt embarrassing to me. And it was really only later as an adult that I was like, oh, there's like so many things wrong with this that, you know, I could actually step back and be a little more objective about it. But I definitely understand Rebecca's concern about the word crazy. If anyone else would like to send in stories or thoughts for a Copian's Corner, I would love to hear from listeners. It's admittedly kind of hard to be vulnerable. I'm not totally sure why I'm pushing myself to do this sometimes, but it's sort of a psychological process I'm trying to go through uh, because of all the things that have happened to me, um, particularly in the last few years. And I do really relate to the show and I am trying to like pull out why and talk about what an impact it can have on our personal lives. I know it's affected a lot of you guys as well and that that a lot of people have connected really deeply to the show and to certain characters. And if there's anything that you would like to share in this personal segment in Ecopian's Corner, I'd love to hear from you. I'd be happy to read anything on the show that you'd like to share. That's it for this time. Thanks for listening.